0: It's another edition of Terry's Talking. How you doing, Terry? <laughs> I am well,
1: David. I am here. And we got a lot to talk about.
0: We do. Uh, Terry Pluto, award-winning columnist from The Plane Dealer in Cleveland.com. I'm David Campbell, sports manager at Cleveland.com. I want to apologize at the top, Terry. We missed last week. I was in the hospital for two days. I thought I was going to be back in time to do a podcast when you got back to town. And then I was in for two more days. So we had to skip last week. So I'm sorry. I know we told a lot of people we'd be back uh, next week. With some other questions, so
1: well, you just need to stay out of the hospital. That's
0: my advice. If I learn, that's anything how you get last to
1: be a this Like, don't get hurt. <laughs> stay out of the hospital. <laughs> but what did you learn last week in the hospital?
0: Stay out of the hospital. Yeah, and also that. Oh, did you? And also that apparently, walleye fishing has cheating in it did you see? yes this?
1: i am not surprised my father was a pretty <laughs> avid fisherman in the old days now he was not a competitive one but uh, even if you get fishermen together they all start lying about their fish so i'm not surprised they would stuff sinkers and dead filet of fish in that wallet. yeah well
0: what's the fishing story uh, it, it, it was in in a couple of years the the weights will be even bigger
1: <laughs> yes they always are so <laughs> There you go. But. Yeah.
0: So, uh, but I was talking to Darcy Egan today, who covers outdoors for us, and he's putting together like a Q and A of just about behind the scenes. So I'm really eager to read that. And yeah, uh, actually, that, that posted.
1: There are there are all these things. I was surprised the money was that big, but I guess the money
0: gets big, and that's it. So yeah, yeah.
1: All, all right. right. Well,
0: we do have a lot to get into today, Terry. Um, oh, one of the things I wanted to get to first was a couple of weeks ago when we did our last pod, we asked fans. You said you were at the Medina Library, and the topic mm-hmm. came up about which Cleveland team was closest to winning a championship, which I thought was a really interesting question to ask. Uh, so we asked some fans to write in and, and kind of put their thoughts into which team they thought was closest. And I, I want to read one response we got from Carla Bizarro. She okay. emailed us and said, the Cavaliers, obviously. Why? Because coaching and very good moves. Not to take anything away from Francona at all. He's made good choices as well, but the Cavs, Huge expectations. The Browns, well, they're just the Browns. They don't find a way. They don't
1: <laughs> and, find ways know, to win the, the game not the, the Guardians not, and Cavs do. I found myself <laughs> actually saying that this morning when I went at the uh, nursing home with my mom, Melva. You know, the 96-year-old African-American lady has been like my mom for over 20 years. And a couple of other people were talking about it. And I said, oh, you know, I'm going to the um, – I'm going to the playoffs this weekend with, with the guardians. And, and this lady was a cast fan and, and another lady came by. She's called loves the Browns. She goes, yeah. And the Browns are the Browns, (laughs) you know, and we got to get past that sometime, you know, which means they're going to mess it up. They're going to just,
0: um,
1: Let's do the Guardians first, then we'll do the Browns or the Browns.
0: Yeah, yeah, you're making me think, Terry. I follow a soccer team called Tottenham Hotspur, and they're known as okay. Spurs. And they have a lot of the same issues as the Browns in terms of winning big games. And, mm-hmm. and there's a saying, "Oh, that's so Spursy." Like yeah. people say that it's so Spursy when they lose a game, and I wonder if that's going to catch on. Like it's so Brownsy. <laughs> yeah, way, well, I, for, I forgot.
1: I forgot who it was from the Steelers. One of the players says, "You know, them Browns is the Browns."
0: Yep. And, that and was for the playoff game a couple for of years ago. The playoff ago, yeah. game.
1: Yeah. It actually turned out to be wrong whoever it was, but
0: um, it was Juju Smith Schuster.
1: Okay. Well, here I, we go.
0: I, yeah. So, all right. right. Guardians, let's get I've into been it. I've are doing
1: some quick scouting on the Tampa Bay Rays. And um it, it's interesting, you know, that if you think around major league baseball that the Guardians are faceless um at least in the national media tampa bay really is uh all right for five points what player and you will know his name leads tampa bay in ops you know which is on base the the only kind of modern stat i like on base percentage plus slugging percentage and that player is
0: are you going to give me some hints or do i just it's have a to guy guess you it?
1: know the name would be very common
0: all right um In OPS, not batting average. No. Or anything like that. Although his
1: batting average is very strong there. The batting average is two ninety six.
0: I'll even give you that. Hmm. Okay.
1: Oh, uh it's not Wander Franco. It's Yandi Diaz. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, take that. That's why we I mentioned before when we were just preparing, I said, there's a lot of Cleveland flavor to this. Yandy, who by the way, kinda like you know, high fall on player love with different guys. You know, this year it was a dual thing of uh, Will Brennan and Oscar Gonzalez. The year before it was Owen Miller. Once upon a time it was Ben Francisco. So I don't always hit him well. But Yandy Diaz was another one of my guys. And uh, by a little background, well, they always think that, uh, you know, Yandy Diaz was just went over there for, oh, who the heck was that guy they traded for him for? He was that awful first baseman. It was in a four-way trade. But we'll, we'll think of it in a moment. But the the big thing at Yandy Diaz uh, was that was a trade. It was a four way deal that brought Carlos Santana back to Cleveland in 2019. And um, but Yandy is hitting. Um, he's always you know hit pretty well, and he is hitting. Here we go, 296, and his OPS is 782. He's just like solid. Nine homers, 57 RBIs. You know, he's walked 78 times, struck out 60. Actually, those stats would fit in great with this with this group. Um, and so he's, you know, he's had a nice career over there. But that's, when you start doing that and you say, okay, well, who else do they have? Um, it, it, it's just, it's a little odd that, how about this? Tampa Bay, here we go. Cleveland, sixth and run scored in the American League. You know, Tampa Bay 11th. Remember, we're talking 15 teams. Home runs. Don't hit them. Tampa Bay is eleventh, Cleveland's fourteenth. So you can sit all you want in the bleachers and pray for a pray for a ball to come to you. You know maybe Jose will hit one, um, uh, but that's probably going to be it. G-Man Troy has ten. Although you know they have a couple guys with with twenty on the on the race. You know the big thing these two teams do they pitch and they pitch and they pitch. Tampa Bay three point three nine ERA. Cleveland 3.40. Uh, uh, 3. I mean, they're right. They're the same. They're third. They're right, basically tied for third in the American League. All right, another guy with Tampa Bay. This is kind of interesting because I kind of lost track of him. Francisco Mejia. Remember, he was a mm-hmm. hot prospect with them, and you know, Mejia is a part-time catcher for them, and he's played ninety-three games. He's batting two forty-two, six homers, thirty-one RBIs. You, this is a guy that hit a ton in the minors. Remember, he was in a trade with San Diego for uh, for hand, Brad hand, that he was the big deal there. Um, and he just didn't do much with, with, with San Diego. And then finally, uh, Tampa Bay picked him up. And so you got Francisco Mejia, for those of you getting, we're, we're going deep in the weeds of people who like prospects. Uh, but the other guy is there. And he's second in – now, it's another common name. You should get this one. Second in innings pitched for Tampa Bay, David Campbell, is? Uh,
0: And it's a former Cleveland player? Yeah.
1: Hmm. That just about gives it to you.
0: Oh, Corey Kluber.
1: Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. I said, yeah, that was a – so there he is. He's pitched 100. Remember, they don't like anybody to pitch past, uh, like, six innings or, you know, twice through the lineup. Yeah. McClanahan, Shane McClanahan is going to start the opener for them, throwing 166 innings. He's 12-8 and eight with a 2.54 ERA. Kluber may start the third game or may not if there is one. He was 10-10 and 10 with a uh, 434 ERA. He threw 164 innings. You know They just run re- relievers, and it just never ends with them. They have another Cleveland guy. I, I forgot all about this guy, Sean Armstrong, kept bouncing up and down with Cleveland. So, of course, you know, Kevin Cash is the uh, is the manager. So they uh Oh, here's another name. Deep in the prospect well. JP Frierson, a reliever. All right, Do you, did you ever hear of him? No. All right, he was in the uh he was with Cleveland and he was traded to um the uh Yankees in the um, Andrew Miller deal,
0: and I How remember, do you remember that.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, he was just a throw-in, and you know, I'm looking. How about this? This guy's pitched uh, kind of bounced up and down, but his first career ERA is 2.31. So there you go.
0: Huh.
1: All right, more than yeah. probably some people want to know about the race. No,
0: no, that's good, Terry. And and the you know the margins in this series are going to be so small. Oh. It's going to be an error or or some. I mean, it's like the Spider-Man meme. You've seen that Spider-Man mm-hmm. meme on social media with the two Spider-Mans pointing at each other. This yeah. is basically identical approaches and just similar teams. You're right. They play the same way. It's hustle. It's defense. It's doing things right. And there's not much to choose here in terms of the more talented team, right? I don't think so because you you could just go, you know... <sighs>
1: Like, and now if you're in Tampa Bay, you're quickly reviewing, you know, let's, uh, let's take a look again at, at what are those guardy Who are these guys? What, you know, Oscar Gonzalez and which Gonzalez is that? And Oh, they have one more, one more, one more former Indian or the what's former Indian, Harold Ramirez. Oh yeah. He'll probably be in the lineup. So, all right. They could roll out Harold Ramirez, yandi Diaz and Francisco Mahe on, you know, their first game. Be ready. <laughs> G-Man Choi, Korean import. There they go. And it's like the other teams that spend all this money sit there and look at how do Cleveland and Tampa do it? This is, by the way, Tampa's eighth trip to the playoffs in the last 15 years. And they play in the East.
0: Which and, is saying something.
1: Right. And then you turn around and they go, what is Cleveland? How do they 17 guys making Major League debuts and all this stuff, and they're the first team since the 86 Mets to make the postseason with the M- M- Major League's youngest team. Um, so it's just, it's yeah, just Terry, something just to,
0: Yeah, just to add on that, Terry, I've got the luxury tax payrolls here okay. that I, I thought might be interesting. The Rays have the 23rd payroll, made the playoffs. The Guardians have the 27th highest, highest luxury tax payroll. Payroll. They made the playoffs. Mm-hmm. If you look at the top ten, there's nine playoff teams. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. There's eight of the top, eight of the top ten payroll teams made the playoffs. So if you took all the playoff spots, eight of them are being taken by teams that finish in the top ten in spending. The Mets, yes. Dodgers, yes. Yankees, yes. Phillies, yes. Red Sox are number five. Didn't make it. Breaks playing pa- hard. <laughs> Padres. You know, Terry, that's why they're waiting to put the TV schedule out. They wanted to wait and see if the Red Sox could make the playoffs. Yeah, probably time. They wanted to give them one more. Take.
1: They'll probably want to take one of the Cleveland or, or Tampa Bay out. Huh? Can we just get rid of yeah, one of them? Let's get
0: the Red Sox in there. So the Padres are number six. They made it. White Sox, seven. Didn't make it. Too bad. Braves, eight. Astros, nine. Yes. Blue Jays, 10. So the, out of the top 10 spending teams, the Red Sox and the White Sox didn't make it. And here you have the Guardians at 27 and the Rays at 23 that have taken two of the spots. And that is, that is so impressive when you look at that. I mean,
1: generally you look at that, the only other team that sometimes pops in there that's not in the top 10 is Oakland in the past. They always say, my baseball people tell me, Cleveland, Oakland, and Tampa Bay are playing, you know, they talk about money ball. They're playing like defy the odds every year. Uh, And Oakland this year, you know, they just, they stopped trying because they want a new stadium. They want to move. They don't care. Um, But Cleveland, I mean, that's why it gets me upset when people say that, uh, you know, the Guardians, quote-unquote, aren't trying because they're just kind of looking at payroll figures. Do you know how hard you have to try to keep going into the playoffs every year when you're not in – forget the top – when you're not in the top 10? And by the way, it's very common. uh, Somebody gave me a stat a couple years ago that seven out of the top 10 usually make the postseason every year. That's like the average. So if you're saying there's 10 teams that make it, You know, in general, uh, you're looking at uh, the rest, the other 20, you got a couple teams out of there and that's it. And they tend to be in Cleveland and Tampa Bay. Mm -hmm. So it is kind of cool. They're like, they're having their own, you know, world series. It's like, we may not be better than everybody else, but we're probably smarter.
0: Well, and you wrote this in a column the other day, Terry. If the Browns had had this kind of success, making a Super Bowl oh. and almost winning it, uh, and all this playoff uh, success and playoff appearances, that people would they'd be building statues over at yeah. First Energy Stadium. Yeah, they so, would. I mean, yeah. there's always a little
1: bit of the frustration of you've come close but didn't get it. But it's like when I was writing the Vintage Browns book, you know, I I actually part of the section there was to reset. The thinking about the Browns of the late '80s, which it has to go well beyond the fumble and the drive. You know, those teams with great guys, they continually there. They had a quarterback. The team, the town embraced them. All right, Indians of the '90s. You know, guys, the players that are beloved by by fans still here. Mike Hargrove's, you know, a very respected, well liked manager. Came close but didn't win it. But is that really a negative? I mean. Yeah, you'd like to win the whole championship, but my goodness,
0: what runs those were. Indeed. Indeed. All right, Terry. Um, well, a couple let's let's stay on the Guardians here. Mm-hmm. I, I moved the question up from our hey, hey Terry section. This is from Jack and Erie, longtime friend of the show. And Jack says, a subject brought up by Ken and Tony this morning. Those might be some sports talkers in Erie. I'm not sure. He says, what are the best jobs you think Cleveland coaches have done for a particular season? Mine would obviously be Tito this year, Stefanski in 2020, and any of any of the undermanned Fratello teams in the 90s, probably 1998, given that, as I recall, it was Kemp and four rookies in the starting lineup. So uh, yeah, Jack and Erie, he was wondering, Terry, how would you kind of place... Terry Francona's performance in 2022 against some other really good Cleveland manager slash coach performance. You could roll
1: in Francona at 16 also. Right. Yep. That's as good as I've seen. And uh a one season, you gotta give him credit. They always said, Well, you yeah, had great players or whatever, but in ninety-seven, Cleveland finished eighty-six and seventy-six with Mike Hargrove. And that was a the year they traded Kenny Lofton and they also let Bell Bell walked in free agency and they had Marquise Grissom and uh Matt Williams and that and that team went to game seven and I thought Mike was masterful uh taking that team, you know, that deep in the playoffs and almost winning it. Um uh, but you know the the thing about Francona is he's been here ten years, nine winning records and that and you just There is nobody expected anything like this. And if they get, especially if they get past the first round, David, I mean, I know Tampa, like you said, they're they're playing the same type of game. But Tampa Bay has, uh, nobody picked Tampa Bay and Cleveland to make the playoffs. And most people thought Tampa Bay would have a much better record than the Guardians this year. I mean, the thing about the Guardians, I mean, as we speak now, they won 91 games. It's not like they went 82 and 80. I got, an, I got an email from a guy who said, "Well, I mean, can't you just say part of the Guardians' record is because the White Sox and Twins underperformed? I guess you could say that. You could also say the reason they underperformed is because it couldn't be Cleveland.
0: Well, and that's what Tony La Russa would tell you. Yeah. <laughs> he just he just stepped down this week.
1: Yeah, and is well, not
0: coming back. So. You know,
1: I forgot. You know, you were when you grew up in Chicago. Were you a Cubs or White Sox fan?
0: Both. Yeah, I like both teams. Yep.
1: Yeah. Well, your team should not have hired a seventy-seven-year-old manager.
0: Yeah, well, they paid for it. Uh, they there's did. No doubt about that. But. I,
1: I don't mean I'm. Is, I'm 67. I just can't imagine doing it at, at that age. The,
0: yeah, it's not it's a, a knock on
1: anybody. Yeah, can you be a GM? Can you, you know, be an advisor? All that stuff, of course. But that grind of every day. I mean, that's what happens with Francona. With his health, sometimes he gets worn down. And by the way, this is because it's, it's sort of delicate to to, to, to dwell on, but the way Francona actually got through the season this year was critical because he didn't make it through the last two. And you could see Francona's career here in Cleveland. After the all-star break, his teams tend to play uh, much better. The stats I don't have in front of me are much better. And they did it again.
0: We have a question about that if we have time later, Terry, from okay. from a fan. So my greatest Cleveland coaching performance of the ones we haven't mentioned was LeBron James in the 2007 Eastern Conference Finals, Terry. That's yeah. my pick. <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, 2016 <laughs> or which, which one?
0: LeBron in the 2007 Eastern Conference Finals against wow. the Pistons. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> Best coaching well, I'll job. I'll tell you
1: the other the other one. I'll give LeBron this. Taking that team in 18 to the NBA Finals, remember, because that was where Kyrie uh, bolted, and they were just kind of trying to slap the roster together. That was pretty remarkable. Uh, I still think the best Cavs coach I've seen in all those years is Lenny Wilkins. Uh, I covered all them when they put those young guys together, and uh, I mean that was that was a very special time. But unfortunately, it's just hammered because of Michael Jordan. You know, I could see it. They got knocked out five times in the playoffs by Michael five times by Michael Jordan.
0: Sad but true. All right, Terry. Hey, let's take a break. Uh, when we come back, we will get into the Browns, the loss to the Falcons. I know you have thoughts on. The mantra of Terry Pluto, which is seven is better than three, but Mm. three is better than zero. So we can get into that. We'll talk about the Cavs a little bit. I want to get your thoughts on who you think is going to be the starting small forward on opening night. Um, So think about that. We want to talk about your faith column from this past weekend. You went and talked to John Adams and just about the legacy he has built with the drum and the stands and how many people have just shown such an outpouring of support for him. We can get into that. We've got some good, Hey Terry questions and uh, yeah, we'll get into all that when we come back on Terry's talking. We're back on Terry's talking, David Campbell and Terry Pluto. All right, Terry, let's get into the Browns a little bit. Very disappointing loss for fans to the Falcons on Sunday. The Browns had a lot of opportunities in the red zone. Um, where, where do you want to start here with the with the early decision to not kick the field goal on fourth and three? What do you want to get into here? I'm, I'm trying to think how we dissect this. All
1: right. You know, I am not a big anti-analytics guy. I think analytics tells you a lot of stuff. Um, and I would understand that in the first quarter, and it's fourth and three, and you're thinking the average team should probably go for it, get the seven. Because, you know the old thing seven is better than three but when you're the browns and you know even though your offense has played fairly well it's not been a juggernaut in the in the red zone all year i think that it's barely over 50 percent conversion um and you also know that uh, atlanta is uh, yes they have been scoring some but this is not a again, a team that should ch- ch- scare you to death with Marcus Mariota, you know, take the three. But more importantly to me are two other factors in that game. Number one is the, the red zone play calling where, where Stefanski said that's on him. You better believe it's on him. He called those plays. Uh, and they talk about – I forgot whether they had, four trips to the red zone or three, but they only scored once in the red zone. And it was a broken play. Remember Jacoby Brissett? I don't know what he was doing, but then he just put tuck, tucked his – the ball under it, he like vaulted over a guy and landed in the end zone. So that was a red zone scoring play. But then we had the strange one, the fourth down where he throws the ball out of bounds. Remember he's rolling out and
0: and and nobody it, had a chance to catch it. Nobody
1: had a chance to catch it. Um so that was that was it. But the biggest to me, David, and I cannot I'm sure it's happened in NFL history, but it's pretty hard to imagine. Atlanta scored 13 points in the fourth quarter. Now, remember, they scored them all on offense, and they completed one pass. I think they only threw one pass, too, if I'm not mistaken. And it was, yes, a long gainer, but it was not a touchdown pass. They just ran it. And the 1921 Canton Bulldogs would have loved that play calling in the fourth (laughs) fourth quarter, whenever Jim Thorpe was playing for them. because, and Joe Woods just was, on I know they didn't have some of the defensive linemen, but they were being, and they were being run over by backup running backs.
0: So if you watch that drive, Terry, I think my conclusion was that was not scheme to me. That was just guys, they just got beat up. They yeah. just got pushed off the line and and just overpowered. By the Atlanta offensive line. And I, I see John Johnson today out in Berea talking about, oh, we need to give more effort. And I'm like, wait a minute, you need to give more effort. And he said, yeah, we need to work on that this week. That's what he told reporters today. And I'm like, you're in an NFL game trying to play, you know, you're playing for money, trying to get yourself in position to make a playoff run later in the season. And, and effort was the problem there. Like, I just thought that was a really weird thing to say. It is.
1: It is and, I know they're, you know, they're they they're they're lighter on the line physically in terms of weight and even some of the linebackers. But it's kind of like if they're running it every single time and Mariota is having a terrible day throwing the ball, why not just load up the line? Put everybody up there and see what happens. Cuz remember, um they were using guys for, that I had to look up Caleb somebody from Ball State. They even put a defensive back, Avery Williams, back there for one time, handed him the ball, and he got 21 yards. Now, I don't know he does some returning, but still, it was just incredible.
0: Well, and that goes back to what you were saying a few minutes ago, Terry, about that early fourth and three. So analytics, all right, analytics are what they are. But you have to know, the Falcons are probably going to score between 20 and 26 points. Like, that's what they've been doing. Mm -hmm. Cordarell Patterson is banged up. And so you're—it's like a race to twenty-five, twenty-seven points. And so on fourth and three, I, I would have kicked it there. And I, and Dan Lobby has a really good phrase. He says you're—you know—you're grading the result more than the process. And I get that. But if you're at fourth and three, and you know it's going to be kind of a low-scoring game, like just take the three. How many and, people would have second-guessed them? By the way, had they taken the three? Probably none, but
1: other than the analytics if, guys. If you're in the playing,
0: yeah, if you're playing the Kansas City Chiefs, like yes, go yeah. for seven. You got to go for seven there. But this was a banged up Atlanta Falcons team. And the other thing I want to mention, Terry, the, the when they got down to the one yard line after the, the uh, Donovan Peoples Jones catch toward the end of the first half, and they were they were um, it was second, second and goal one. from the one. Yeah. What is the most successful one yard play in the NFL this season? And the Browns are running it. Yeah, quarterback it, involves, sneak. it involves snapping the ball to Jacoby Brissett and having him plow into the line, and he gets like two yards every time.
1: I mean, he's a man on that. I mean, really, because I've talked to some other quarterbacks who don't particularly like quarterback sneaks, including Kelly Hol- Holcomb, who uh, had a teeny-weeny p- fracture of the non bone in his foot. That's exactly what... Butch Davis called it back and when he broke his foot in a game against the 49ers. Remember, a teeny-weeny fracture and a non-displaced bone in his foot. Thank you for sharing that. Well, that was a quarterback sneak. But Jacoby Brissett, he's a man. We've seen it. He's a man. He's six foot four, 230, and he's tough. And, in fact, he probably wondered, why, why am I not doing it? He should have pulled a Tom Brady and just done it anyway.
0: Well, yeah, if you call that quarterback sneak on second and goal and third and goal and fourth and goal, I mean, you have three times – I think they had three, two or three timeouts left. The yeah, clock I mean, wasn't an issue. Yeah, all you do
1: is put Nick Chubb back there, and then you run your quarterback sneak because they're thinking Chubb's going to get it.
0: Yeah, and I just – and, you know, Kevin Stefanski after the game was like, well, we were down at the one-yard line, and then we get the holding call. Well, the reason you had a holding call – was because, because you called a pass yeah. on the one-yard line, which opens up the possibility that you're going to get a 10-yard penalty for holding if something goes amiss. I mean, you could look at it this way, too. All right, so
1: you're on the second and one. You tried Jacoby. Now you want to throw your pass? You could try it third and one because you know. Now fourth and one, I'm going for it. you know, And then I've doubled back to Jacoby again. So Although I probably went Jacoby, Chubb, Jacoby. I probably would have done that. Uh, or you know who I like in the goal line is Kareem Hunt. Kareem Hunt is tough on the goal line.
0: He is. And they ran Nick Chubb on first down on that, and that, that was the near fumble that got blown dead because yeah. he got stopped. So I yes, they tried to run, but like you you've got Jip Kobe Brissett, he gets two yards every time he sneaks, so sneak it three times. And anyway, <laughs> anyway I just thought yeah. that was a little bit of a curious decision there. And and it is a little bit of <laughs> grading the result more than the process. But there I thought the process was just very simple. It was just you want analytics? How about the most effective short yardage play mm-hmm. in the NFL? run that one
1: that run that one and especially if you have a quarterback that is capable of doing it and he doesn't have a big injury history you know some of these guys they get hurt and the last thing you just want is so i have cringed in the past seeing some of these really good quarterbacks run it. brady runs it all the time he doesn't get hurt but um so so we'll see but that that does lead to that i mean but i also believe in the end When you have had four games and three games of those games, you've allowed 17, 17, and 13 points in the fourth quarter, and it's not as if your offense was handing points to the opposing team. You're just giving up all these points on defense. That points directly at your defensive coordinator and um, your defense in general.
0: Well, as Kevin Stefanski said, there's a lot to be done from the players and the coaches and the front office to, to get this moving in the right mm-hmm. direction. So, and I, I did get the sense from listening to Kevin Stefanski this week that he kind of realizes that he might've overthought some of this yeah. and that he's going to rely on the players and their talent. Uh, so we'll see what happens. I, I just, the tone in his voice was kind of like, yep, I should have just kept it simple and relied on our guys. So we'll see if that happens.
1: I know but, somebody um, knows Stefanski pretty well. And they tell me he, if anything, he'll overbeat himself up on introspection of play calls and that, uh, and that they have to talk him down a little bit from from there. But it does lead, you know, sometimes, here, I'll try and finish the sentence. I remember, once had an, a veteran NBA, NFL person tell me, the NFL, listen to this, is over-schemed and under-taught or over-coach and under-caught, however you want to do it. In other words, they have so many schemes and so many plans, but they basically sometimes don't just dis- dwell on the basics enough, which roll back to your Jacoby percent on the, on the quarterback sneak. So I've always liked that phrase because it, it could go through a lot of things, you know, in, in life. Often we get we over-scheme it and we under-teach it or under- just miss the, miss the obvious. So we shall see this week. Now this week, you know, you got to score some points. and. Um, I mean, we'll see if uh, Jadavian and, and uh, Miles are going to play. Uh, I'm doubtful on Miles. I don't know what's going on with Kalani.
0: Well, we should know more today. So, um, hey, before we you know move what, on from the Browns, You know what you're going to know today? What's that? Their day today. <laughs> and aren't we all? Aren't
1: we all? As you found out when you're in the hospital for <laughs> two days, it right. turned into
0: four. There you go. Uh, hey, before we move on from the Browns, Terry, do you feel like – Cade York is being kind of held back by this coaching staff a little bit. The Browns, they passed up the you know the 21-yard field goal in the first quarter on the fourth and three, which we just talked about. But also in the fourth quarter, they had a fourth and six, and it would have been a 61-yarder. And you invested a draft pick in this guy, and they punted in that situation. And that if he made that field goal, they're in an indoor stadium down there in Atlanta, the Mercedes-Benz Stadium. No wind, mm-hmm. artificial turf. You probably would want to give your big-legged kicker a, a 61-yard shot there. I don't know. Sure. What would you have done? I mean, do you yeah, feel like in I'm, general they're holding I, him back?
1: I, I want to find out about him, and that's a good way to find out about him too. Uh, of course, Phil Dawson would say that's heaven for kickers because um, when he went to from Cleveland to um, – um, he kicked uh, at Arizona towards the end of his career. Now, he wasn't quite as good by then. He was in his 40s, but kicking in that dome – he liked that, and actually went from Cleveland to San Francisco with the win there to Arizona. So uh, he said it's a lot different. And the other thing that you don't have to worry about on in the Dome is if you're a kicker, uh, remember I'm into all this stuff, you have to watch your, your approach to the ball like in Cleveland or Pittsburgh or whatever because that turf can go off from under you. You're not even thinking about that and the dumb that 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 ground is dry and it's stable and it's it's safe so yes i would have tried it and if he missed okay so they get the ball on the uh the 41 instead of the 20 you know by the way uh is a very good kicker uh that kid coo um so uh there you
0: go. Yeah, so I, I mean, I get it. like in the opener, Stefanski he had a, he, they had, they punted on a long field goal attempt because he said he didn't want Cade York's first kick in the NFL to be from that far away, yeah, like which like fifty one yards I, or whatever. But I yeah. feel like they're still kind of holding him kind of back a little bit. And I looking, don't know. Let's, I don't know. Who knows? We'll it's see. Like,
1: it's like kick it. Yeah. Try it. If it doesn't work, well, you're you know you you're still learning a lot about your rookie kicker. And let him go out and and try it. I'm not sure I want to kick a 61-yarder in Pittsburgh unless it's right at the end of the game, you know, where it's tough to kick in that place or in Cleveland. Um, but that play, as you said, ideal condition. So it would be fun to sit into – we would li- love to sit there, like I'm sure when Andrew Barry and Dee Podesta and whoever else is involved in the critique of the game and listen to the coach. I'd be fascinated to hear his thought process on uh, not only – Why he, uh, say, didn't kick, take the three points or like the play call, you know, all that kind of stuff.
0: All right, Terry, let's move on to the Cavaliers. Uh, Chris Fedor, our colleague who covers the team, he's actually going to be at the preseason game tonight, the preseason opener. Um, I don't know if you saw the ship, but uh, Dylan Dylan Windler Mm -hmm. did not make the trip because of an injured ankle. And you got to feel for this guy. It's just been one thing after another for him. Uh, He was in the Derby to be the team's small forward. And I, I guess I kind of wanted to get your your thoughts on, if you had to kind of break down who's going to be the Cavs starting small forward on opening night, how do you see that playing out right now? I know it's early and there's some preseason games here and some time. but I
1: mean, the best quote-unquote basketball player for that, of, now if you put in your group of um, Chetty Osman, uh, Karis Levert, uh, Ocaro, and Windler, I don't think there's anybody else that's be in consideration for that. Uh, the best basketball player is Levert, but does that make sense? And no. The last thing you need at that position is another guy who needs the ball. So I think you're either going to go into um, it's probably going to end up being a coral because he'll you know he'll guard anybody you want. I would just have a coral shooting nine thousand corner threes a day
0: <laughs>
1: because that shot's going to be there. Anytime he wants it. He had a six week span right after the all-star break where he was hitting over 40% on that shot. And it was kind of like one of those birds that wasn't there in the beginning and then landed on his shoulder for a few weeks and he was making them. Then the bird flew away and, and took the shot with it. I don't mean to be, you know, capricious about this, but that's exactly what it was. So it showed for, that period, he was taking three a game, that he could make some. And that would that would be probably what they would would do. Now, the other possibility, I don't think they want to start this, but I think Dean Wade could end up in that spot too. Uh, and uh, Chris Fedor and I were talking to Sidney Lowe, the, one of the assistant coaches. This was at the uh, press conference for uh, Donovan Mitchell before Wade even signed his contract extension. And we were talking about that, and he said, now, don't forget Dean Wade. He said, you know, we can go big with him at small forward. Of course, they feel Mobley um, well, we can cover anybody, but do you really want to draw him that far from the basket? And and I forgot about that. Wade had some nice moments. So I would throw him in that mix, not as a starter, but as, as coming off the bench and maybe playing more than we think. I'm just not an Osman guy. I just, I've watched Chetty for a long time, and it feels like too long. You know, he makes yeah, $8 and million. Dollars.
0: Yeah, he's been given a lot of opportunity too, yeah. and uh, you know Dean Wade six nine, which would put some length back in the lineup when you got the small backcourt, mm-hmm. and they just gave him an extension, right? And he so. can make
1: the corner three, and you know, and now Kevin Love, they they were thinking about how to kind of work him in with the bigger lineup, but he would not be a small forward candidate. You know that would have You that would be have to where where Mobley would have to go, and guard the small forwards.
0: All right, so the Cavs are in Philly tonight. Chris Fedor is there as well. It's a seven o'clock tip-off, first preseason game, and we shall see how that goes. It's going to be you know, a survivor David a too, survivor. To see yes, comes out of that fray.
1: And also to <laughs> see, see what Car- you know what Karis Levert looks like, because if they start all those guys, you know, which, which we're going to see Mitchell and Garland and Mobley and Allen and Sayo uh then off the bench. You have um, Love and Laverta really the only two off the bench that I could think of that are scores. So that'll give them an opportunity. Now I did talk to JB Bickerstaff after that press conference too, and I mentioned to him something a GM from another team told me he said uh, the nice thing about the Cavs making the, the Mitchell deal is he says you really have four all star caliber players, so you should have two on the floor almost all the time. And that sets up um a chance to stay out of those 15 to 2 things where you get outscored and he said the calves definitely you know they needed just more scoring and he talked about how at the end of the year last year whether Levert was hurt or lost or whatever he just didn't deliver at all so maybe coming off the bench um with a fresh start, we'll see how that goes. But I think he's more important than people figure. But not so much as a small forward, but more like the. Say, I was thinking, you know, Sexton as a scorer off the bench before the trade. Well, maybe he does that role. All
0: right, we shall see a lot of uh, rotation questions and a lot of minutes questions that uh, they will be answering here over the next couple of weeks heading into the regular season. So, okay, Terry, your faith in you, Colin, from this past weekend was really just. Everybody was sharing it and reading it the last few days. You stopped out to visit John Adams, the legendary Cleveland baseball fan. Brought his drum to the game back decades ago, started banging it out in the bleachers and, and just so much time spent out there. So many connections with fans and you had a chance to sit and talk to John for a while and just uh, it, it was a really touching story. I, I just wanted to tell you how well that, done that was. And, and John was just so gracious with um with his time too, but talk about what it was like to be there with John Adams and, and kind of how he's doing and everything.
1: You know, even though I've known John for decades, I actually didn't know how it started. And, you know, one day a guy decides to bring a drum to a game. That's really what it comes down to. And he thought, well, uh, this could be a lot of fun because the old stadium, with those wooden seats, people would bang him up and down. He said, I was a seat banger too. And he thought, well, I would, uh, When I bring a drum, this is 1973 in August, and I looked up the uh, Indians' um, average attendance. Then it was a little over 7,000, so second lowest in the majors. Team stunk; it was terrible. So he called the team one day and said he wanted to bring a drum to the game. And they, of course, they were glad anybody wanted to come to the game, and they said, "Fine, uh, just don't bother anybody." And so he kind of went out to the bleachers, and actually said he started. Drumming it around, there are a few people there its going to bother him. So then he went to the top of the bleachers and banged his drum. And he wasn't planning to come back. Bob Sudick of the old Cleveland Press, a baseball writer who was covering this dismal team, thought, "What is that guy doing out there with the drum?" And that was back when the Cleveland Press was when it, back we had PM papers. And I, uh, when I was uh, at Cleveland State, I worked part time at the press for uh, a year and a half, and they're always teaching you get the PM angle, the different angle you know, for the afternoon paper. So he went out there and asked Adams, well, you know, what are you doing? And he told him the story about that. Were well, are you going to come tomorrow and do it? Adams goes, I don't know. I just, maybe I was just sort of trying this. Well, Sudek, who, by the way, uh, as a couple other players from that day told me, he said, Bob was never afraid to like take what you say and make it a better story. Uh, so, <laughs> and they didn't mean he would like say a guy, not a guy that, uh, uh, Bob didn't write that guy wanted to be traded when he didn't. But just he would, like, help your dialogue a little bit, make you a little more clever. So he just wrote, well, you know, about this. And and John Adams will be banging his drum again tomorrow for this team. I used to call them the, he used to call them the Featherheads. He'll be banging the drum for the Featherheads tomorrow. So if you want to come out and hear him, say hello, he'll be there. So Adam sees this in the paper because he knew Sudik. He said, well, I guess I better go again. And that started it.
0: It's really something.
1: Yeah, John now, you know, and he went until the end of 2019, never missed more than one or two games a year. We were trying to figure out with postseason, everything else. We came up with about 3,900 games he went to. Home games, if you do percentage of the home games, say, since, you know, 1900, he went to like 40% of all home games from 1900 to 2019. <laughs> And then, unfortunately for John, COVID came in 20. He was still fairly healthy then. He was having some kidney problems. but um, And then 21 came and heart problems and broke his hip. And, you know, he's been in um, O'Neill Nursing Home in, for uh, over a year. And sent him a card, by the way. I, I put yeah, that well, in, you mentioned I'd, that,
0: Terry. Let me—I've got the address here from the bottom of your column. and yeah. I wanted to share that with people in case they did want to drop them a line. And and you had some pictures in in your column of just all the the photos people have sent to John yeah. get well cards and just the connection between him and the fans. It's it's just glorious to see. Uh, but I, I, if you if you do want to drop I, my could, line, let me get this out there real quick yes, so please. I don't forget. Send it to John Adams and it's O'Neill Healthcare Nursing Unit. It's, it's O apostrophe N E I L L. So O'Neill Healthcare Nursing Unit, two zero seven seventy Lorraine Avenue, and that's in Fairview Park, Ohio, and the zip is four four one two six. Again, John Adams O'Neill Healthcare Nursing Unit, two zero seven seventy Lorraine, Fairview Park, four four one two six. He would love to hear from all of you. So, go ahead, Terry. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there.
1: No, that that's fine. And the other thing about um, John is. Curtis Danberg from the Indians lives in that area. I'm from the Guardians, excuse me, and has been stopping by every week. And by the time I saw John two consecutive Saturdays and by that second one, they had only clinched the division title, I think, a couple of days before. John already had his Cleveland Guardians central champion hat and T-shirt, and and, and he was ready to go. Um, he's been watching the games. And, I mean, well, another thing I found out about John – he actually is a very very good drummer. I mean, he he jammed with the James Gang and has played with a lot of rock, rock groups and played bluegrass and all kinds of different drumming things. As he said, I could teach a monkey to drum like I do at the Games in 5 minutes. That's it's like that's <laughs> always and he goes, of course that's what I'm known for. Uh John was a his day job, he worked at AT&T for over 40 years. And hes I believe he's, his birthday is like October 9th, and, and he's going to be 71. So, and also keep him in your prayers. I prayed with him both times I was there because, I mean, his attitude is great, but he, physically he's going through a lot. And I know the Guardians are trying to figure out maybe something for the scoreboard or something for the playoffs. I know they're looking at some things. So hopefully they will.
0: Well, we wish him all uh, the by best. By the way, yeah, think
1: about this. All these teams, I'm sorry, David, but they they spend all this money on marketing to come up with something like a John Adams. You know how many different mascots you're going to have? All this stuff. I mean, millions of dollars. not just here, everywhere. But a guy takes a drum to the game, and 40 some years later, actually 48 years is how long he, he lasted, uh, is a legend. No marketing guy could come up with that.
0: Those are the best ones, the ones that just kind of happen. And uh, he's certainly a legend in Cleveland baseball, and we wish him all the best, and we'll be thinking about you, John. So hang in there, man. Um, All right, Terry, uh, let's see. Before we get to the Hey Terry questions, uh, Aaron Judge hit home run number 62 to pass Roger Maris for the American League record. There's been some debate about whether this is the quote-unquote clean home run record because of the Sosa McGuire era and the steroids and everything. We don't have to get into that, but um, with Aaron judge baking, breaking Roger Maris's record in the American league, I know you have some connections to Roger Maris and I wanted to give you a chance to talk about that.
1: Yeah, you know, a long time ago, Tony Kubek, the Yankee shortstop and then longtime long time broadcaster. Uh, and I wrote a book called 61 about the, the Yankees and it, the book actually was, was Tony's idea we were talking about that because uh the Roger Maris had just passed away and he always felt that people had a very poor understanding of the sixty one C's and what Maris went through and all of that. And he had a connection with the Maris family, Pat Maris, Roger's wife and so on. Um and I was fascinated to find out a couple of things. Number one was that uh Maris and Mantle, Mantle had 54 homers that year. Maris had 61. Babe Ruth's record was 60. Uh, Babe Ruth did 154 games. This was a 162 game season. So even though Maris hit 61, it, it was considered, you know, an asterisk thing because of that. But what I did not know is that in New York, the fans and most of the media wanted Mickey Mantle to do it. He was their guy. Roger was the guy that came from Cleveland and Kansas City. He was sort of the outsider. And But while they tried to drum up this rivalry between Mantle and Maris, they shared an apartment in um, – uh, I forgot whether it was Queens or one of the suburbs. Uh, they used to drive together in this, this convertible that Mantle had to games – Then Mano was thrilled that all the reporters were bothering Maris because they didn't bother him. And this was before the PR people figured out that you just need to bring this guy out for one group press conference and that's it, you know, like they do. No. So he was inundated by the New York media all over the place. There was like five papers back then. And so what he did, and on top of that, Ford Frick was—I uh, forget—he was American League president or whatever he was, but he was also—he was also Babe Ruth's ghostwriter. So he had a, a kind of a stake in wanting this thing, even after Maris got it, to still belong to Babe because that was his guy. So it just shows even when you look in the rearview mirror of life, there's all kinds of different agendas and, and things. And, and what Maris did was pretty remarkable. Then I wrote, well, what happened to him after that? Yeah, I think he had 27 and, you know, he, um, he badly broke his wrist and then came back and played too early and it never healed right. Then he went on to St. Louis and he became more of a kind of a, a singles doubles hitter, a good right fielder. Uh, recreated his career that way. And then for a long time, he owned a beer distributorship down in Florida.
0: Ooh, all right. Yeah. It's a, it's quite a story. And, and there, I can't even imagine what that race must've been like back then. Cause it was the first time. I mean, the social wire yeah. thing was kind of the latter day version of that, but this was the first time there were two guys really going at that record that hard. the pet, the pressure must've been just. And amazing. Roger's
1: hair was falling out at that point. and, um, it was a really miserable experience for him. I mean, in, in retrospect, he, I don't think everyone hit 60 homers again just because of, of that. And he also viewed himself more as an all-around player. He was an excellent outfielder. Um, yeah. And Mantle uh, got hurt towards the end of that season as part of why he, uh, he dropped off. But uh, it's, it's a hard book to find, uh, 61. I'm sure maybe on Amazon or somewhere. But it's one of my favorite books I wrote because Tony Kubek was my co-author. He did the first interview with all the players, then I did the did, uh, second interviews. And this was where you really, even though he didn't write it, I mean, this was his book. And it gives a wonderful thing of what the Yankees and what New York was like at that time. Um, so
0: it's a, it's a cool slice of history. All right. Check that book out. Hopefully you can find it. It's got to be out there. So, uh, all right, Terry, we're running a little short on time, Terry. Let's get through some some of the Hey Terry questions for this week. This one is from Craig in Sebastian, Florida. He says, with the recent loss of, of Browns linebacker Anthony Walker Jr., would this not be the most wonderful opportunity to bring in a veteran that is now available? We never drafted him because the Browns did not understand the term pedigree. Clay Matthews' son is available and needs eight sacks to get 100. We could use the veteran leadership with the young players. It would be a great place for him to retire, where his dad played. Love the show, and that's again Craig and Sebastian, Florida.
1: Boy, probably I don't know. too
0: late for too Clay Matthews yeah. Junior. Right? Yeah, too late. He had a too great late. career. I think that might. I think that probably was something the Browns looked at a few years ago when the Packers let him go. They just didn't like him.
1: I don't know yeah. why. I mean, as a person, they just didn't like him as
0: a player. I remember I kept bothering them about that a few years ago. All right. Here's the next one, Terry. is from Alan Gilbert in Westerville, Ohio. He says, hey, Terry, with the Guardians' recent success, I was thinking about past teams and some of the greats and for some reason thought about Phil Necro. Why do you think there are no knuckleball pitchers in the majors these days? Because coaches and
1: managers hate knuckleball pitchers. I mean, it's <laughs> as do. simple as that. They hate them. <laughs> they, they say nobody can catch them. Nobody can coach them. Uh, they don't want to. I mean, Actually, one of the last really long-term knuckleball pitcher that had success was, was um, uh the guy with the Red Sox that Tito had um, uh, Wakefield. Not, yes, Wakefield. I started to mm-hmm. say Candiotti here, but it was Wakefield. And but that was one of those where I always thought there was you kind of like having them because if nothing else, they could like pitch all the time. Oh they
0: yeah, just they, just sort they sort of eat innings,
1: eat innings, and. Yep. Eight innings and but it's like they just hate it. And I think the same thing in the high school and college ranks. Nobody nobody wants to, to deal with it periodically. And an older pitcher tries to learn how to throw one. But I've always was fascinated with knuckleball pitchers. And when I was in Savannah in 1978, covered the Savannah Braves, that is double team. That is when Jim Bouton at the age of 39 was trying to make a comeback with the knuckleball. And he was trying to teach it to me. And it, it's not easy to throw, David. But at, at the age of 39, throwing a knuckleball in double-A, and he hadn't pitched in like seven years since he was last in the majors, he had like a 2.8 ERA and completed 12 games. <laughs> it was phenomenal to watch it. And he went up with the Braves, and he
0: won a game or two in September, so. Yeah, it's kind of like you're right, though, with all the analytics and the streamlining that these teams have done in terms of teaching and everything. Like if you throw a knuckleballer into the mix of your pitching rotation, it's like having a goalie in hockey. Like you could have special coaches and special, uh, you know, catchers. And like, you know, there's always a guy who catches the knuckleball pitcher. Yeah. Maybe it's just too quirky for them to deal with. I think you're probably right about that. They just
1: don't want to deal with it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm sure if they it was another Phil Negro, okay, you put up with it, or Joe Negro, or you know Hoyt Wilhelm, or some. I mean, heck, Candiotti and Wakefield were good pitchers. You go back and look at their numbers. And as you mentioned, their ERA sometimes are a little high because in a game that would get away, you just leave them out there. They're not going to get hurt.
0: Yep. All right, Terry, let's make this the last one. This one is from Caleb Mackey from Columbus. He says, hey, Terry and David, Jose Ramirez, what a gift to Guardians fans. Jose is clearly underappreciated by the national media, but he becomes hard to ignore as he continues to accumulate career numbers and climb all-time lists. As a Hall of Fame voter, Terry, where do you put his Hall of Fame candidacy at this point? Thank you for all you guys do. Keep up the amazing work on the podcast. I look forward to it every week. Thanks, Caleb. We appreciate you for listening. Uh, What do you think of Jose's State of the Union in terms of Uh, Hall of Fame credentials, Terry. If
1: he could do this a couple more years, you know, 25 to 30 homers and over 100 RBIs, um, I think they're strong. I really do. I also know that those of us who are aware of Jose and voters, we're going to have to do some real lobbying because I I wrote a column in the middle of this year, The Secret Superstar, on Jose, because I just realized that people just missed it. And, you know, I'm assuming he's going to spend you know, perhaps his whole career here. Remember, he has a no-trade. That's part of the deal. So uh, that was that wasn't one of the reasons he took a lot less money, so he can control his own destiny. And um, he's remarkable. I mean, this is a guy that, by the way, you know, the only manager he's ever played for in the big leagues is Story Francona. He came I don't up. See at the that end every day. Of, yep. No, he came up at the end of 2013. He went back to the minors. Um, and 14 and maybe 15. And then in 2016 is where his career took off. And if you compare, by the way, his stats in 16 to the stats that Andres Jimenez have right now, and they were both about the same age of 23, very similar. Now I'm not saying Jimenez is going to go in that direction, but the careers are very similar. And the same way Jose, what he played second, he played short, he played left field for a while before he settled in at third. And that was another thing that I love about Jose is like he would just he just plays you know the, for, yeah the old line he's a ball player yeah he is his, his uniform is dirty he looks kind of squatty you know he struts around hits a ball of the box thinks double played all these different positions um just and he and and Ahmed Rosario you know have really taken the leadership there along with Hedges um, on that. The, among the everyday players. Uh, now the some of the younger players are coming along, but you need a, just a few older guys who are about the right stuff. And and those guys set the tone and when uh, especially when you see Rosario and Ramirez playing so hard and yelling at the other guys to run, you know, you better do it.
0: All right, Terry, well it's going to be a big weekend at Progressive Field, a 3 game series Friday, Saturday and Sunday. Really a really great sports weekend if you're a Cleveland sports fan. You got the the Guardians playing The Browns playing at home on Sunday at 1. I wonder if we're going to have a baseball-football simultaneous game thing going on on Sunday afternoon at 1, if it's Game 3 of the series. And then Ohio State's playing Michigan State on Saturday. So it's a really great sports weekend. Hope you enjoy it. Uh, We really appreciate you listening. And we'll catch you next week on Terry's Talking.